Hello, and welcome to the Cast Podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter chapter podcast going through A Song of Ice and Fire one chapter a week. I'm one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brittany Fish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to the 112th episode of the Nauticast titled The Second Wish, an analysis of a Clash of Kings Arya 8 in which Tywin, the lion loser Lannister, marches west and Arya whispers another name to Jack and Nagar, only to regret it far, far too late. And we're very happy to welcome back for this episode. You may know her from her writing at Hypable, or from her podcast work on Vassals of Kingsgrave and Jewish Fangirls, or from her excellent appearance on our own episode on A Game of Thrones Sansa 6. Please welcome back to the Nauticast, McCall. Hey Thanks guys. so much for coming on. Of course. I'm so happy to be here. We are so thrilled that you've come back. I've, I've listened to that Sansa episode a lot of times, just uh, not because I'm a narcissist, not because I'm a total narcissist, and I like to listen to my own voice. <laughs> I'm listening for you, McCall, is what I'm trying to say. I listen for your insights, not to hear myself do that do the synopsis on Sansa one more time. Oh, well, same. Sometimes I go through and I'm like, oh, damn, that was a smart thing to say. <laughs> <laughs> so, as always, this episode brought to you by our small council, our Hand of the King, Wolfman, Zach, Grand Maester Tim Bob, Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, Mark N., Lord Travis, Master of Ships and Word of the Waves, Sir Keith J., Master of Whispers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws, Archmaster June, Hill of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, Ward of the North, Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonscone, Scarlet, the other woman, and Mistress of Whispers, Lord Micah, Ward of the West, the Kraken's Bane, Lord James, the gym that was promised, the High Bearded Priest, Lord, Lord Jacob Sisson, to the Hand of the King, Lady Zine of Lyrium, Hedrigal, Captain of the Airship Arrogance, His Grace's High Inquisitor, Sir Frank B., Sir Jasper the Cruel, the King's Justice, Lawrence, Prince of Dorm, Kelly, Ward of the East, and Mistress of Old Bay of Crabs, Steve the Steadfast, Master of Hounds, the Blue Winter Rose, Knight of High Garden, Lady Stephanie, Lord Anonymous, Lord Carlos, Lord Andrew, the Priest, Lord Andrew the Restless, the Priest of the Drowned God, the King's Cook, Noli Oli, Master of Canoli, Sir Sorcedelica, Prince Matthew of House Targaryen, proud soy boy of Summerhall, defender of the fifth book, and swing dancer with dragons. Sir K.W. Dent, Elsie the Blackwood Guard, and Batman of the Seven Kingdoms. Lord Pension for Nostalgia. Queer Alex, Rainbow Commander of the Ladies and Gentle Thems. Lord Quint Esquire, Master of Absolutely Positively, not serving as a spy for several unnamed high lords and ladies in order to further the secret Blackfire style conspiracy to overthrow the oppressive small council. Haldover, the waiter for T.W.L., A.A. Ron, Dampere, Prophet of the Forsaken, and High Priest of Euron Crozai. Lieutenant Glenn, Lord of H Town, Veneras of Hulsk, Veneras, one more time, Veneras of House Golgarian, the first for name, Princess of Dragonstone, Mistress Fart, the Overworked, Queen of the Pencils, the Eraser, the first draft, Queen of Monochrome, Devotee, the Great Game of Thrones, Pushes the Realm, Lady Reels of the Seven Kingdoms, Blender Paints, and Maker of Drawings, Shama the Slayer, Lord Adam T, Lady Alexander of Tarth, Sir Christoph Logos, Bloody Scorpion of the Redfield, Defender of the Letter of Kin, and the Wolverine of House Corgoyle, Lady Elizabeth, Mistress of Horse Face Lesbians, Sir Josh Snow, Bastard Bounty Hunter of the North, Surveyor, Chief of Parties in the Frozen Wastes, Lord Peter, Lady Ashley, Lady Raj, Mistress of Horse, the Dead Shepherd Reborn, Preacher of the Four, the Dead Shepherd Reborn, Preacher of the Poor Fellows, Marshall Harrison, Absent, Shipwrecked in the JHC, and our three newest members of the Small Council. Again, three newest members of the Small Council. Amazing, awesome, thank you all very much. Grave Rob Stark, the Cadaver King and Horror of Heron Hall. Hedrical, Captain of the Airship Arrogance, who rejoins the Small Council after a voyage across the Narrow Sea to find himself. And finally, Lord George, um, sorry. Sorry, I just have to get this off my chest. And I fear that if I just don't come out and say it now, I'm going to chicken out again. So here goes. I actually find Quaith to be a wonderful character. And Karth is probably my favorite location in the whole series. <laughs> Why am I reading this? I've just been too afraid to admit it out of fear of what my co-host Emmett would think of me. There, I feel so relieved. <laughs> there, I finally re feel relieved to finally admit it. Anyway, where was I? Oh, yeah. Lord George R.R. R. Michael. 
Thank you, counselors, very much. The taste of corruption. How is it, Jeff? <laughs> Does it taste like bitter. ashes in your mouth? It, it, it tastes like communism. <laughs> Thank you so much to all our counselors, as always, and a special welcome to our new ones, especially welcome back to Hedrigal and beautiful work, Lord George R.R. R. Michael, in making Jeff say all of that. Our spoiler wing is to be saying all episodes, but potentially talking about all published books. That is the five novels, three Duncan novels, histories, interviews, the Windsor Sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, the TV show. Anything and everything. Our question this week comes from Sir Michael Mertens, a high lord, who asks, My question was about how men like Gregor and his crew find each other. Does such evil find each other? Do they change one another? Is it rotting from the top down? That's a very, definitely a very interesting question. What do you make of that, Jeff? You know, in regards to Gregor and specifically, or more generally, how does a crew like this get assembled? I think it can be nature, and I think it can also be nurture. I think one of the things I was thinking about this question is how after Gregor Clegane dies, how all the mountains men still stick together afterwards. So their central figure is gone, so he's died, but they're still hanging out up in the Riverlands, continuing to stick together. They end up going with over to Bravos. Uh, some of them end up in Maidenpool. So I, I do think that there is an element that they were potentially recruited by Gregor Clegane, but they, fil- they formed a bond of, of brotherhood in battle and in war crimes definitely anyways what did you think michael about this question i mean i think evil is sticky and i think that that is why a lot of the bad guys get lumped together the ones who are still evil but slightly less bad stand out you know hmm. like the 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 guy with the foul language who will give you an extra piece of Shit bread mouth. yeah there you go. That's that's his name. <laughs> Clever George. Love the fall of the fouling. That's shit mouth right there. <laughs> um, yeah, I think I think that it really, definitely like the the the, the true evil sticks together um, and and amplifies itself. Um, if they're fortunate, then they get to you know go off and be like just following orders, Nazis, and people are like, oh, but he's not such a bad guy, really. I think in practical terms, you know, Gregor and his men, their job isn't just to be evil. It's very specifically to forage on behalf of the Lannister army. So it's a question of finding men willing to do that. Go out and kill the equivalent of the people you knew back home. Go out and murder and rape them and, you know, and and betray them and, and stake their coin and torture them. And I think it's just a question of percentage. Like there's 20,000 men in that army. Are there 300 men willing to do that? Probably. So it's a question of each individual unit commander who knows who those men are, and I guarantee they do. They know who the two or three men are that everyone else is a little mm about, <laughs> who's proving willing to do things to civilians that the rest aren't. And when Tywin comes around or Gregor comes around asking for those names, those names get offered up. And then I think the legend builds on itself. Gregor Clegane becomes a figure of myth in and of himself, and you want to be with him if you want to be like him, if you want to be part of what, what goes in his path, and Tywin feeds that flame as well, and you get you attract other beasts like, like Vargo Hoot and the Bloody Mummers, but it starts with that structure, and it starts with everyone being aware of it, because, yeah, I don't think there's any chance involved here. I think every I think Adam Marbrand and every other nice-faced Lannister commander who wasn't like Gregor Clegane gave names to Gregor Clegane of the three or four guys who would join his command, and that's where that company comes from. And in a way, it is where they put their evil. And so they don't have to think about it anymore. Adam Marbrand gets to go, well, none of my men are like that, because the men of mine who were like that, I shipped off to Gregor Clegane and Amory Lorch. It's like the Night's Watch, in a way, almost kind of in reverse. (laughs) But it's the way you just, you put all your evil and all the people you don't want to think about in your nice, golden, shining, lion, Lannister army to do the dirty work that you also don't want to think about. Tywin said at one point in the narrative, I think it was in A Game of Thrones, that there's a tool for every task. So there's always someone who can fulfill 
that idea of like doing the reaving and raping and the and the Adam Arbrands who could do the scouting and the noble work and ride ahead of the Lannister army and never, you know, with your beautiful Fabio-like hair flowing in the breeze, you know. And, you, you know, you find your scouts, you find your archers, and you find your foragers, which is what they call them. So thank you so much, Sir Michael, for the question. If you'd like to ask us questions, we have to answer here on the Nauticast podcast. You're welcome to become a sworn sword or higher level patron over at patreon.com slash Nauticast, A-S-O-I-A-F, where you can find show notes, access to our Nauticast Slack at our two highest levels, and nine bonus Fever Dream episodes and 27 monthly A Song of Ice and Fire bonus episodes. Like the first part of our four-part series on The Wind's Winter, The Forsaken, which is coming to all of our poor fellow and above patrons in the last week of May. So check us out if you're not already at patreon.com forward slash Nauticast, A-S-O-I-A-F, so AF, free patrons who are already members of ours, stay tuned. But enough about Patreon. When we last checked in with Arya, she'd been put to work in Harrenhal, had listened to a hilarious story by Chiswick, and then sicked Jack and Hagar on him for it. Let's find out what happens to Arya in this horror show of a synopsis of A Clash of Kings, Arya 8. We're welcome back to Harrenhal with Tywin Lannister and his army of war criminals who deserve tribunal justice, every last goddamn one of them, preparing to depart. All the combat service support elements for Tywin's army get the army ready to go with preventative maintenance checks and services, inventorying the property books and submitting them in G-Army, and conducting motor stables on Tywin's rolling stock. About 10 of you probably understood that reverence, and that makes me more happy than you can ever imagine. The noise was a swelling tide. Horses blowing and wickering, lords shouting commands, men-at-arms trading curses, camp followers squabbling. Lord Tywin Lannister was marching at last. The first element to SP Fob Harrenhal was was Sir Ginger Fabio, a.k.a. Adam Marbrand, Tywin's trusted reconnaissance, surveillance, and target acquisition squadron commander. Sir Fabio rolls out atop his red horse with his long red hair streaming in the breeze. He was one of Tywin's best horsemen and swordsmen, as Weiss explains to Arya. I hope he dies, Arya thought as she watched him ride out of the gate, his men streaming after him in a double column. I hope they all die. I just love that. I just love how Arya does that. It just makes me laugh every single time. Arya knew that these guys were off to fight her brother, Rob, who had won a smashing victory out west. Fuck yeah, Rob. Though what that victory was isn't precisely known by the grunts in Harrenhal. They only know that Rob had done something big, and now Tywin's goons were getting ready to march. As for Arya, Weiss has her running messages all over the castle of Harrenhal. Arya feels tempted to escape until Weiss tells her and all of his charges that he'll probably turn them over to Vargahot to have their limbs cut off if they attempt to escape. As for those messages, Weiss probably thought Arya couldn't read, so he sends the missives off with Arya unsealed. And like a good spy, Arya reads every last letter. Sadly, there's no real information of interest, just logistics work. Though one letter was a demand for a knight to repay his gambling debt back to Weiss. The knight couldn't read the letter, I know how you feel about that, buddy, and tells Arya to read the letter for him. She does, and the knight attempts to hit Arya. She ducks away from the blow, steals a silver banded drinking horn from the knight's horse, and runs away before being caught. When she gave the horn to Weiss, he told her that a smart little weasel like her deserves a reward. I've got my eye on a plump Chris Capon to sup on tonight. We'll share it, me and you. You'll like that. Ah, yum. I can't wait for her to enjoy some capon later in this chapter. As Arya traipses all over Harrenhal delivering Weiss's letters, she tries to find Jack and Agar. She wants to give him another in, uh, she wants to give him another name, but she can't find him due to all of the chaos. 
Finally, she asks a soldier at a gate about it, and he reports that Amory Lorch and his men are staying put at Harrenhal. And congratulations are in order. Sir Amory Lorch is being promoted in order to become the Castellan of Harrenhal. Hooray for Sir Amory. <laughs> but also first, but also Vargo Hote was sticking around Harrenhal too. And Amory and Vargo hate each other, so they're probably trying to kill each other. It's a joke. It's funny. It's not. Otherwise, the Mountainous boys were leaving Harrenhal too. So Arya would have to act fast in order for Jacket to get him or one of his boys. But then Weiss orders Arya to head over to the armory to let Luke in the armor know that Sir Lionel needed a sword. P.S. Sir Lionel may be Sir Lionel Frey, one of Jenna Lannister's sons. One of Jenna Lannister's sons. Just a little bit of trivia for you. Weiss gives her Lionel's mark for his sword, and she heads off to the army, finding a bunch of shirtless burly bros hammering and sweating in the heat. Mm. When she spied, Gendry, his bare chest was slick with sweat, but the blue eyes under the heavy black hair had the stubborn look she remembered. Arya didn't know that she even wanted to talk to him. It was his fault that they'd all been caught. She asks Gendry about getting a new sword for Lionel and where she can find Lucan, but Gendry pulls her aside and tells her that Hot Pie asked whether Arya had yelled Winterfell during the battle at God's Eye. Arya denies it, but Gendry knows the truth. He had covered for Arya with Hot Pie by telling Pie Boy that Arya had shouted, Go to hell! And Arya needs to remember this if Hot Pie asked him about it. I will, she said. Even though she thought Go to hell was a stupid thing to say. She didn't dare tell Hot Pie who she really was. Maybe I should say Hot Pie's name to check in. <laughs> a little disturbing. But then Gendry goes and gets Lucan. Lucan gives Arya a new longsword, which Arya carries across the yard, liking the weight and balance of the sword, even if it wasn't like Needle. Still, she's starting to recover some of herself as she thinks that she's feeling less like a mouse these days. Arya sees the open gate and wonders about whether she might whether she just might slip out of Harrenhal, claiming that she needed a new horse for Sir Lionel. The stable boys wouldn't be able to read the letter. She could take the horse, the sword, and roll out, and she'd have the piece of paper with her. She would just tell them that she was going to Sir Lionel or someone if they caught her. But then that thought of Weiss and what he would do cuts in. She thinks she rather likes having feet instead of running off. But then a squad of archers walks past, telling about the Starks and how monstrous and evil they are. They also take turns bragging and fretting about facing the Starks in battle. Arya thinks that they should all run away, and that includes Tywin, Sir Gregor, and everyone going out to face her brother in battle. All of you better run, or my brother will kill you. He's a Stark. He's more wolf than man. And so am I. But then Whis is there. He grabs the sword from Arya and, backs her and backhands her for being so slow to complete her errand. Arya becomes a mouse again for a moment, tasting blood from Whis's blow. She hates him now more than ever. Arya looks at Whis murderously and Whis threatens her with another blow and then orders her to accomplish more errands. And she's going to have to double time it if she wants to eat tonight. Somehow, I know, it's hard to believe, Whis has forgotten his promise to Arya of the capon. I was really looking forward to Arya eating that chicken, but no. God, Whis, you're so bad. So wrong. Whis threatens that if Arya gets lost again, he'll beat her bloody, but Arya knows better. She knows he'll never threaten her again, and Arya feels the old gods guiding her steps as she steps in... And she steps to in Harrenhal. She passes under an archway and immediately runs into two heroes of A Song of Ice and Fire. No, wait, not heroes. It's Roar Genbiter. Not heroes at all. They speak lots of really interesting words to Arya about whether Yorn kept her around because of her anatomy. Anyways, now that Roar Genbiter are here, maybe they'll take sexual advantage of Arya, right? Not really. She wants to know where she can find Jacken. Rorge halted. Something in his eyes. Could it be that he was scared of Jacken Agar? The bathhouse. Get out of my way. So Arya heads to the bathhouse and finds Jacket in the tub for a soak with a serving with a serving girl pouring hot water over his head. The narrative is kind of commuting here that the faceless men fuck. How about that? Arya tries creep creeping up on Jacket, but he stops her and tells her that she's big footing her way on over to him. 
Surprised, Arya wonders how he knew that, but Jacken says that the noise of leather on the floor is loud to someone like him. Again, someone who fucks. Anyway, why are you here, Arya? She has a message. And what's that message? Arya eyed the serving girl uncertainly. When she did not seem likely to go away, she leaned in until her mouth was almost touching Jacken's ear. Weiss, she whispered. Jacken Agar closed his eyes again, floating languid, half asleep. Tell his lordship a man shall attend him at his leisure. His hand moved suddenly, splashing hot water at her, and Arya had to leap back to keep from getting drenched. Jacken being playful, this guy is so fucking weird. Anyways, Arya heads down to the brewer to tell him what Weist told her to get to tell him. She gets cursed for her trouble, but the brewer promises to deliver the barrels of ale so long as Weist provides the manpower to roll about. Day in the life of Arya Weasel. But that night, Arya does get to eat. She gets a stew. Not great. A girl who Weiss was sleeping with gets a piece of blue cheese and a wing from the capon that, Ar that Weiss had promised Arya. But Weiss eats everything else besides a few bites on the thigh. Arya thinks that maybe, maybe Weiss is saving them for her, but no. He orders her over, grabs her throat, and backhands her twice for apparently looking at him. Awesome. He then finishes off the last bites and tosses the bones to his dog. Weiss, Arya whispered that night. She bent over, over the terror in her shift. Dunson, Poliver, Wrath the Sweekling. She said, calling a name every time she pushed the bone needle through the undyed wool. The tickler and the hound, Sir Gregor, Sir Amory, Sir Illyn, Sir Marin, King Joffrey, Queen Cersei. She wondered how much longer she would have to include Weiss in her prayer, and drifted off to sleep dreaming that on the morrow when she woke, he'd be dead. Unfortunately, the next morning, it's Weiss who wakes her up with a kick. It was that day that Tywin Lannister himself was riding away from Harrenhal, and Weiss warns that the work and beatings will continue even with Tywin gone. Plus, it'll be twice as hard as there'll be fewer hands to help out. Weiss will see to them. Sure thing, bud. Arya thinks before heading up to a tower to watch Tywin die. I mean, excuse me, leave. <laughs> he dies eventually. From her tower window, Arya looks down on Tywin in his amazing finery of a horse, clothing, and armor. Fellow war criminal Kevin Lannister saddles up next to Tywin, also looking... Spectacular. Four standard bearers advance ahead of the Lannister Bros and all the men of Tywin's host with the Red Ox, Golden Mountain, Purple Unicorn, Bantam Rooster, it's actually Harris Swift's famous blue cock sigil, guys. Love that sigil. Brindled Boar, Badger, Silver Ferret, and a Juggler in Motley, Stars, and Sunburst, Peacock, and Panther, Chevron, and Dagger, Black Hood, and Blue Beetle, and Green Arrow sigils all stand behind Tywin. Last of all was Sir Gregor Clegane with his horned helmet wearing Poliver, this being the helmet that he stole from Gendry right next to him. A shiver crept up Arya's spine as she watched them pass under the great iron portcullis of Harrenhal. Suddenly, she knew that she had made a terrible mistake. Oh, I'm so stupid, she thought. We did not matter no more than Chiswick had. These were, men, we, these were the men that mattered, the ones she ought to have killed. Last night, she could have whispered any of them dead. If only she hadn't been so mad at Weiss for hitting her and lying about the capon. Lord Tywin, why didn't I say Lord Tywin? But maybe it's not too late. She needed to find Jacket before Weiss died. So Arya runs down the stairs and through the courtyard of Harrenhal as the gate closes as Tywin's army runs off. And then she hears another sound, a scream filled with pain and fear. A dozen people got there before her, though none were coming clo any, any too close. Arya squirmed between them. Weiss was sprawled across the cobbles, his throat a red ruin, eyes gaping sightlessly at a bank of gray clouds. His ugly, spotted dog stood on, his stood on his chest, lapping at the blood pulsing from his neck, and every so often ripping a mouthful of flesh out of the dead man's face. Someone takes a crossbow and kills the dog, lapping at the blood flowing from Weiss's throat. It was Weiss's dog who did the deed, and everyone, and everyone mutters about Harrenhal being cursed and Heron's ghost killing Weiss. Good wife, I'm about to declares that she's not going to sleep here anymore. No, sir. Arya lifted her gaze from the, from the dead man and his dead dog. Jack and Agar was leaning up against the side of the Wailing Tower. 
when he saw when he saw her looking, he lifted a hand to his face and laid two fingers casually against his cheek. And that is a Clash of Kings Aria 8. Well, now that we're up to Arya's eighth chapter in Clash of Kings, I can almost forget that Arya's arc started at a slow, honestly somewhat boring pace. We're in this shit now, and I love it. What did you two think of this chapter? Arya 8 might not have a devastating showstopper sequence like Chiswick's story in Arya 7, but it more than makes up for it with its own unique strengths, particularly in how it showcases George's mastery of atmosphere. He can move on a dime between the chaotic tableau of an army in motion with which the chapter starts to a scene of quiet, mysterious intimacy like Arya and Jockin in the bathhouse. All of it comes together as the context in which Arya makes her next big choice, her next interjection into the domain of death. While the choice to kill Whis and not, say, Tywin, is rooted in her personal internal struggles conveyed so vividly and fiercely in this chapter, it takes place against the backdrop of the age of wonder and terror the political and magical expansions that naturally come together at Harrenhal, where Black Heron climbed the fiery ladder to find Aegon the Conqueror and his dreadful black shadow waiting for him. These twin forms of power, separated at birth, are careening out of control and laying waste to all we, mere mortals caught between them, hold dear. In the wake of righteously taking down Chiswick in her last chapter, Arya seizes onto Jockin's seemingly limitless ability to kill at will, as her way to control the brutal chaos all around her. But as the chapter ends, she feels as adrift and powerless as anyone else, lost in both a fairy tale maze and the Game of Thrones. What did you think of this chapter going back through, McCall? So one of the reasons I really like this chapter um, is because it's kind of a nothing chapter in the um, grand macro view of, you know, A Song of Ice and Fire. Like, some important things could have happened. Um, Arya could have used her wish in a politi- politically effective way and off Tywin or the mountain or someone like that, but that doesn't happen. Um, she also could have escaped from Harrenhal uh, pretty easily, actually. Uh, she doesn't do that. Um, Tywin's departure is definitely the most important um, story significant part of, of this um, particular chapter. And Arya contributes to that maybe zero percent. Um, it's, it's really, you know, the, the parts of this chapter that mean things to Arya, um, the death, the death of Lise, things like that, um, they don't mean anything in the greater story. And I don't even think that this chapter is thematically kind of on, you know, like so many of Arya's chapters in the early part of the book are about the suffering of the small folk that you guys have discussed like so so well um in previous episodes um but this pain is all kind of internal to the to the social structure it's kind of socially ordained it's you know it's not out of the ordinary um and everything that's painful belongs to Arya um I think that's perfect though because this is the second wish like you guys titled the chapter um it's you know in any fairy tale the second wish is the boring wish, <laughs> you know, like, you know, the first one is like, okay, yeah, all right, ooh, you get what you want. The second wish is like, yes, this is real, it's true. And then the third wish does the, the flippy flippy that we're going to talk about later. Um, it You need it, but it's usually pretty forgettable of itself. And then the amazing thing about this chapter is that Arya realizes that when it's too late. She realizes that she squandered her second wish. And it's it's just when the jaws of the trap close and it's too late. Um, you know, it, it's a petty chapter and the outcomes are tragic because they're petty. 
Uh, and I think it's easily overlooked, but but really masterfully done. I absolutely agree. I think it's interesting too, if you consider <clears throat> it being Arya's second wish, whether like she realizes like in kind of the subconscious way, like those stories, like I learned about this, like when I was growing up, like, you know, that the second wish, you're not supposed to waste your second wish on something mundane. And then finally, when it snaps into place, it's too late. And then she, she kind of has to roll with it from there. Could be something that's going on. Again, Arya and Sansa are more alike than uh, people give them credit for. We'll talk about that towards the end of this episode. So one of the things I was thinking about when I was thinking about this chapter is something we were discussing at the end of our little chill session we do at the end of every single live stream. And for this one, we were doing it for our, our prior Fever Dream episode live cast this past Thursday when we were talking about how small acts of violence and horror sometimes shock us and kind of get under our skin when over-the-top depictions of violence, violence don't. So here I was thinking and musing about why that moment in the chapter where Arya where Weiss grabs Arya's throat and backhands her twice, why that feels so much more visceral than Weiss's dog tearing off chunks of his face and drinking his blood. I mean, on one level, we understand because we care about Arya and feel that catharsis that such an overt villain got his at the end of the chapter. But on another level, I don't know how to put this like politely, but there's there's a feeling of intimacy about being choked and backhanded that gets me at least. I mean, it resonates with some of my experiences growing up, and sadly, it probably does for a lot of our listeners, too. George does a wonderful job of showing both sides of violence. But for me, George really hits home in depicting the sickening dread of a beating to come and the commonplace violence when it actually does come. Very well put, brother. And But before we get to any of the kind of more intimate parts of this chapter, we start with the big picture. Arya 8 opens on pure cacophony, a trumpet blast of images and sounds as thousands of people and all their stuff spring into action at once. It's very cinematic, a hard cut to a blast of noise to get the audience's attention, waking them up like the, the cockatoo that Orson Welles threw into Citizen Kane. George cuts in from the master shot to inserts of smiths, squires, seamstresses, but they all swirl together into a single crowded portrait of an army in motion. As George puts it, the true ruler of the castle is neither Tywin Lannister nor Black Heron's ghost. It is confusion and clangor that rule Harrenhal now. And this wonderfully expresses the mundane side of Harrenhal that contrasts with the spooky supernatural side, as we talked about in previous Arya chapters. No one really knows what they're doing in this chapter. Everyone is just confused and running around and yelling at each other. I mean, the tasks are being accomplished bit by bit, but the overall impression is one of a, quote, swelling tide of noise, crowding out thought. A perfect microcosm of how societies are always rising and falling at the same time. And it's all because, quote, Lord Tywin Lannister was marching at last. And why is he marching? Well, it's not to defend Joffrey from Stannis. It's because in his little cat and mouse lion and fawn game with Robb Stark, Tywin turned out to be the fawn all along. I'm so glad that you used those uh, animal terms because this chapter relies so heavily um, and so beautifully on animal imagery. Uh, you know, these are obviously important ideas. In Arya's story, um, Arya Horseface, she's called, uh, she emotionally mm. relies on the idea of being part of a pack. Eventually she, you know, cheats on the faceless man by becoming a cat. Um, but in this chapter, you know, the animal imagery makes, like, it, it helps explain um, why Arya makes the mistake she does. You know, she's a character who can sometimes almost be a little bit too too clever for the narrative sometimes. And in this, this chapter, she's literally driven by petty instinct. Um, and in this chapter, more than other occasions, Arya is possessed of an animal motivation. She acts on hunger, on pain, and the possible relief of those things. Um, I don't think she thinks that she's acting for those reasons, but she is. There's no real calculation. It's, it's 
conditioning. It's reward and punishment. Um, Arya ate, it's, in my opinion, the story of basically the animal food chain, a hungry creature who, you know, she moves up the chain in power, but not in motivation, um, which is sort of the opposite of what Tywin is doing, if you think about it, because <laughs> he's trying to stop himself and his family from sinking down the food chain while refusing to acknowledge that that is what is actually happening. <laughs> exactly right. Tywin's kind of projection of himself is... is... It's starting to look a little shaky. I mean, Tywin's plan up until now in A Clash of Kings to sap Rob's strength before luring him out to defeat so Tywin could focus on the Baratheon bros instead has totally fallen apart. Rob rode off in the other direction, subverting Lannister defenses at the Golden Tooth, killing Tywin's cousin, destroying the army that was supposed to help Tywin defeat Rob, running roughshod over the lands of Tywin's vassals, and even threatening Lannisport and the Rock itself, as far as Tywin knows, that is. Yeah, I mean, this is like the Lannister low watermark in the war. You have enemies in every direction but the southeast in King's Landing. And even farther than King's Landing, you got Stannis there in Storm's End. Uh, definitely coming very soon to King's Landing. He's going to get there real soon as soon as he finishes business in Storm's End. It's going to be tomorrow, maybe the next day, maybe next week. Um, we talk a lot about George has done a lot of uh, research on politics and history, religion, pop culture, movies, etc. to make his stories feel organic. But what this kind of reminds me of and all this kind of confusion and clamor that's going on in Heron Hall is board games. I mean, the pieces are moving, the board is getting reshuffled, and suddenly the faction that started the game off and the strongest position is suddenly very weak. Ukraine is weak. Classic board game shit. I mean, George R. Martin is himself is famous for his love of board games and his licensed Song of Ice and Fire for several board games, as people know, or maybe don't know. They're okay games. They're not that good. He once commented, though, he said, I was a comic boy. I was a comic book fanboy. One of the original comic book fanboys. Thank you very much. The ones who started comics fandom. <laughs> Yeah, he's yeah. very I, proud I, I, I just can't imagine like writing this as like a human being but you know whatever George and wasn't married boy... before it was cool guys <laughs> yeah right and the comic boy fan and the comic book fanboy thinks that games and cards and miniatures and all that stuff is hot shit and that comes from a not a blog entry from, uh, from 2007 the important takeaway for all of you guys who are writers out there, which is many of you, is to take things that you love in your leisure time and make them part of your universe, kind of make them, integrate them in, because it'll be something you'll be very familiar with. The important takeaway for the story, though, is that if this was the game of Risk, Tywin Lannister has lost Australia, and now he has enemies all around his last continent, which is Europe. He will be willing to sacrifice his kind of North African territories if he has to, even if most of his family's there. You'll know what I mean if you've ever played Risk before. I don't play Risk. You guys are nerds. <laughs> I was about to say Risk. Risk is for normies, like Axis and allies and above, as far as I'm concerned. Well, my my uh, sister, uh, I've tried to play board games, and then the shark-like look in her eye when she as she amasses all of the wheat on Catan. Uh, if I want to oh, yeah. sleep, <laughs> it's that issue. game can possess people's souls in a beautiful and terrifying <laughs> yeah. way. They're not to be messed game. with. It's quite something. You gotta play that online. Yeah, the Nauticast plays. Yeah, oh so no! Thank online. you. <laughs> That'd be so much fun. Oh yeah, all the good stuff. I mean, basically, Tywin has to make a, a move now or lose it all. But it's not just geopolitics that's is motivating Tywin on the march out from Harrenhal, right? There's something more at work with what Tywin is doing. All of this has the cumulative effect of making Tywin look like a fool, threatening the reputation of competence and danger Tywin cares about more than anything, because that's the foundation of the power he wants to hand on to his grandkids. And once again, as at King's Landing in Sansa 3 and Winterfell in Bran 5, we are seeing the Battle of Oxcross as a shadow on a wall. We see it not directly through the eyes of those who fought, 
but indirectly through the eyes of the political communities that transform its meaning with their fears and desires. For Sansa, Oxcross is a glorious victory that nonetheless compounds her suffering in the moment. For Bran, Oxcross is nice and all, but it doesn't win the war, which would bring Rob home, which is all he and Rickon really care about. Specifically, Bran doesn't take much heart from Oxcross because it wasn't Tywin who was defeated there. But now Tywin himself is rejoining the fray personally, because for him, Oxcross means he must march west or risk losing his army. I say risk, not like guarantee, because Tywin's personal history, reputation, and relationships with these lords generally serve to keep them in line, even in dangerous situations. But as I said, that reputation has now taken some serious hits from the very man they are marching to fight, who is occupying more of their home territory every day. Tywin's personal shadow on a wall is starting to fade. His power exists because his men believe power resides with him. What happens if they stop believing that? The tides are starting to turn, not only among his lords, but the common men who are saying things like, Giants, I tell you, he's got giants, 20 foot tall, come down from beyond the wall, follow him like dogs. And not natural to come on them so fast in the night and all, he's more wolf than man, all them Starks are. Here we see the power of rumor and propaganda to shape reputation, and in turn the power of reputation to shape reality, even when it's built on lies. The irony is that while the wild exaggeration of Rob's sorcery was used by Lancel in Sansa III to excuse the Lannisters for their incompetence and defeat, that same rumor mill works against Lannister morale here by making Rob so scary. Yet Tywin must still march west in order to show his lords he will defend their lands from Rob Stark. If he doesn't, if he sticks around at Harrenhal in order to stay close enough to King's Landing to defend it when Stannis marches, it is entirely possible that some or even most of his lords will desert him for their own lands. It's the same reason Renly had to ride for Storm's End when Stannis threatened it. It's the same reason Rob has to try and get home when the Ironborn invade. If you can't defend home and hearth, you are nothing. Fear of Tywin can still keep this army together in the face of that crisis, but not for long if he stays here. When Tywin, Renly, and eventually Stannis too, when they all die, their causes die with them. Something we explored, exhibiting like we were doing those Catelyn episodes last month. Their armies melt away and the lords find someone else to serve. Someone who's, you know, they can reward them better. Yeah, I mean, the Westermen aren't precisely going to just desert in mass after Tywin's death in A Storm of Swords. But they kind of fade. They, they fade from the narrative. Jamie from Feast of Crows talks about how 2,000 seasoned veterans was all that remained of the army that was left from Tywin's. And most of them end up dying at the, uh, at the, battle, of, at the battle of Dragonstone in Feast for Crows. I mean, remember that Tywin's host at Harrenhal is something like 12,000 to maybe 18,000. It's the kind of upper tier level that we hear. 2,000 go to Dragonstone. Some other dudes end up joining the Gold Cloaks. So we have Davin Lannister with some, arm, some, of the, some of Tywin's army out in the Westerlands. And about maybe 900 or so with Jamie that go to, to River Run. And 200 escort Tywin's body back to the Westerlands after, after the, his funeral. That leaves about three quarters of the army that's completely unaccounted for. And I don't think that casualties from the War of the Five Kings explains where they all went. I think that the fear that was Tywin Lannister himself, the person, the Lord, was removed and most of them went home, unconcerned they faced any real consequences. They're right. Recall, too, that during that mad rush to reach the Ruby Ford back in the Game of Thrones, Tywin ends up abandoning all of the wounded Lannister soldiers on the side of the road just to die because he had to get to he had to, was attempting to save Jaime as quickly as he could. Ends up not working out. You know, because I'm reading Dune, as you guys might know now, a little bit over halfway through, I was reading a chapter before we started recording this episode. 
I reached a part where uh, where Gurney Halleck is talking about the Atreides military slogan. He says, we care for our own, which is a really kind of inspiring thing. It's like, leave no man behind. That ain't the last way, though. Who generally wants to take up arms on behalf of a cause that's willing to let you die if, they're, if you're a fucking inconvenience to them? Not me. I won't want to join that army. And that says nothing about the type of war that the Lancers are conducting during the War of the Five Kings and thereafter. It really, I think, sucks to the soul. And I want to say that's the most important reason why the army just kind of melts away. Guilt, shame over their conduct during the War of the Five Kings. Yeah, I think when it all boils down, certainly at this point, everyone involved in the Lannister war effort is kind of trying to convince themselves that they're at the top of the food chain. Um, that is kind of what I, I feel very much in Tyrion's chapters. Um, and Tywin has that really bad habit of binding his own perceived worth to the standing of his house. Um, and that means that when he thinks he might not be at the top of the heap, that's the equivalent of being Arya. Um, you know, bullied, powerless, at the whim of others, you know, certainly being laughed at, and that's completely unacceptable. So, you know, we see over and over again throughout the story that power becomes its own justification. It doesn't matter if it's real or not, you know, it's the shadow on the wall. But as long as Tywin acts like it's real and subsequently, you know, cleanses his actions with that power, see, you know, Rainy, uh, you know, Aegon and Rainy's, yeah. Rainy's, yeah. Um, you know, that the, it's all good. Um, and I actually kind of wonder if that's what the Lannister forces. I mean, it's hard, it's hard to necessarily blame like the rank and file soldiers but like i think they might be relying on you know the 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 quote-unquote natural strength of of tywin lannister um and obviously that's gonna collapse like an overused metaphor um later on thankfully um (laughs) but at the moment you know we're all safe in harrenhal we're grand and golden and you know this unnatural weird northern army or a red god won't stand a chance against us you know against lord tywin lannister um, I actually think it's worth looking for a second at the overblown way that the Lannister men refer to Rob. Um, their fear does make him more powerful, um, as you noted, Emmett, but, you know, also less human. So his victories have challenged all of their perceptions of the typical order of destruction. You know, the lion's supposed to eat the wolf. Um, and so they have to put him outside of that order and recontextualize him into something supernatural in order to be able to understand what's going on. Um, and obviously the language that they end up using for that is bestial. Um, you know, there are giants who follow Rob like dogs. Rob himself is more wolf than man, and so are all the Starks. Um, and while, you know, the language being used to describe and understand Rob by his enemies doesn't, uh, you know, material and in- materially influence his own power, you know, like, I don't think he gives a shit. Um, but this kind of language does very much influence Arya. The camera pans down from all the chaos at the adult level to find Arya underfoot, dashing around on the ground, running errands and soaking it all in. Her tiny child muscles render her unfit for most of the tasks involved here, so Whis has her running messages. Information. Lighter than air, but still powerful. Arya's underfoot status, her role as the mouse scurrying around the huge halls of Harrenhal, determines her access to that information, for better and worse. On one hand, all she hears about Oxcross is bits and pieces. Scraps of half-heard gossip bandied about by adults who themselves don't know the truth. This is a pointed contrast to the full breakdown of the battle received by our POVs in King's Landing and Winterfell, who are close enough to the heart of power to learn all the details about what went down in the Westerlands. In Sansa 3, we saw the crafting of propaganda at the very top with Lancel's story about Rob's sorcery. 
Here in Arya 8, we see how that trickles down the social pyramid until it becomes competing strands of wild gossip among the small folk. The lords get the facts, the peasants get the rumors. At Arya's level, Oxcross feels more like Renly's death, which actually did involve sorcery, and so is shrouded by mystery for those at the top as much as those at the bottom. When the High Lords play their Game of Thrones, the masses only get incomplete fragments of what's happening in their country and must puzzle out the rest. And that's a real-world, modern-day phenomenon, despite how much our media has changed. What does Epstein's death mean? We'll never know, but we can argue about it and guess infinitely. Yeah, the narration, you know, concludes at the end of all this that something had happened, that much was certain. And I was just (laughs) like, oh my god, I feel this daily. Just like, I don't know exactly what, I don't know exactly who, but I know that something... And that's kind of like what you end up relying on as as a decision marker. Has something changed or something not changed? So I was thinking a little bit more about these kind of like rumors and things that we were talking about, which I just love in A Song of Ice and Fire. Eventually, I've had it in mind for years to kind of write an essay about it, but it's just never materialized in, in, on actual piece of paper. Uh, I, I like the, the, kind of the fun way that George integrates um, this idea in the narrative that rumors that the small folk pass between each other, that they, it conveys truths that the high lords are unaware of. And we know this from Davos' second chapter in Dance of Dragons, when he's at the lazy eel in White Harbor, and he's overhearing the small folk telling actual facts information that even not even Vara seemingly knows about. And what I love best, and we, you referenced this before, Emma, but I'll, I'll bring it up again, what you referenced as well, McCall, but this uh, this idea about this gossip she overhears from the last year men. I mean, they're sort of wrong. Rob hasn't actually brought giants down. He's not more wolf than man, but they're also kind of right, too. Rob has brought the umbers down from the north. They're basically giants, right? They're like seven feet tall. I mean, you have you're, you're about four feet or so short of a giant but still these are giants they have giants as their sigils so you can see like how that information gets broken down at at a lower level and more wolf than man again we're alluding to rob being the warg rob having a bond with gray wind and being able to utilize him during the battle of oxcross there was no actual sorcery involved in oxcross the same way that renly's death kind of drew itself out into but we do see that rob used his magical bond with his wolf to win that battle so there was a little bit of magic in there just not you know, a fucking shadow demon coming and stabbing Renly through the neck. Just, you know, a little bit of a, a lower type of magic, I would say. All the most effective lies carry with them a nugget of truth. You know, you got to sprinkle a little gold dust in among the bullshit, both as a politician and as a storyteller. And so, yeah, as McCall said, all Arya knows, all the people around her know, is something has happened. And whatever that something is, it's uprooted their whole world, they get no say in any of it, and they have to keep following orders, working themselves to the bone. On the other hand, Arya's underfoot status guarantees that she goes overlooked and undervalued by the adults around her, which is an advantage in its own way. Remember what Dantos tells Sansa later on in this book. I hear all sorts of things as a fool that I never heard when I was a knight. They talk as though I am not there. By that same token, Whis never imagines that Arya can read, something that separates her from the people around her, hinting at her true identity. As such, Weiss doesn't seal the messages he sends around, allowing Arya access to the information contained within. Now, most of it is useless to her, a recurring theme in George's work where the quest for knowledge is the point rather than the knowledge itself. This came up in our most recent episode on Fever Dream with Abner searching Joshua's cabin, not really finding anything useful, but the fact that he made that decision to go in is kind of the overall point of that scene. Arya doesn't learn some wild, important revelation like, say, R plus L equals J from her ability to read these messages. All she learns is that one knight has a gambling debt which he doesn't know, because he can't read. In the topsy-turvy world of Harrenhal, the knights can't read, and the quote-unquote peasant girl carrying their messages can. When she tells the knight about his debt, he tries to shoot the messenger, reaching out to hit Arya. The ability to read has hindered her in this situation. Her true identity as someone who can read 
could potentially lead to pain. But instead, Arya steals a drinking horn, relying on her, her thief gutter rat skill she's picked up since she was Arya Stark, and she gives it to Whis, proving her worth to him. He is pleased and makes a very significant promise like the bond she made with Jockin, a promise to share his dinner with her that night. Especially on this reread, it, it struck, stuck out to me that that promise is part of Arya's conditioning, and it works. You can almost feel the weight in this chapter of Arya's terror of Whis. You know, he's he's the top of her personal food chain. She doesn't run away out of terror of his retribution. Um, Arya is... <laughs> is literally contracting basically a magical assassin and she imbues Whis with, you know, the powers to read her mind and to hurt her and control her. In this chapter, Arya, you know, she calls herself a mouse and she calls herself a wolf and she's called Weasel by everyone else, but I kind of see her as one of Whis's dogs. And, you know, like Whis's dog, she turns out to have a set of teeth that he does not see coming. As will Ramsey's dogs, perhaps. Mm, please. <laughs> Here's hoping. So for the moment, it appears that Arya's ability to read, something kept intact from her old life, is helping her survive. It's going to get her extra food. But Whis won't keep his promise. More on that later. Throughout Arya's busy day, George keeps reminding both her and us what she's missing while shut up in Harrenhal, the home and family to which Yorin was trying to return her, where she learned how to read. Will she ever get them back? How? In Arya 7, the temptation to escape and make it back home was represented by Lord Kerwin, a Northman known to Arya Stark of Winterfell. But then he died, death being always the brick wall Arya runs up against. In Arya 8, the temptation has evolved to escaping on her own because she got radicalized by Chiswick's story and is more reluctant to count on adults to save her. Whis's messages often take her outside the castle. She's tempted to just jump on a wagon and escape, counting on anonymity and chaos to make her invisible but the threat of Whis holds her back. Specifically, he threatens any runaway with punishment by the Bloody Mummers. Here we see how the power structures of Westeros at war work on the bottom. The peasants, enslaved for their labor, are kept in line by the threat of violence committed by the Lord's disavowable assets. It's just layers of non-people. The Bloody Mummers are disavowable, and they'll commit war crimes on the peasants we don't acknowledge, and the Lords just have to acknowledge none of this. Even the idea of home seems dangerous to Arya, because Whis acts like he can read your thoughts. And Gendry also tells her that the idea of home is dangerous when he goes and talks to her. He pulls her aside to tell her that hot by heard her yelling Winterfell at the battle by the god's eye. Okay, I have to interrupt you for just one second, um, because I have to point out I, what I personally think is probably the greatest single moment of adaptation on all of Game of Thrones. Um, the, se the scene in Season 2, Episode 5, when Gendry is at his forge, and he is bare-chested, and he is very sweaty and covered in soot, and Arya is just like glancing at him from under her hair like I, I i enjoy this i'm not sure why yet though and <laughs> that is You're just not sure why just no i no idea just just totally blank like why yeah, yeah. perfect perfect a plus <laughs> peak viewing tv what's your deadlift routine joe dempsey that's what i want to know i want to get that skinny strong like fitness level that joe dempsey has from that scene oh it's so good anyways um <clears throat> let's get back to the the analysis of this chapter <laughs> <laughs> the most unorthodox bluster 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 <laughs> and so okay so gendry pulling Arya aside to say hey hot pie heard you yelling winterfell at the battle this may seem like a curious irrelevant detail for george to include it's not like anything ever comes of this so why mention it at all well, because it ties so perfectly into this chapter's focus on how to preserve one's identity in a chaotic, violent situation. 
Arya spends this whole book pretending to be someone else. For one moment, in the middle of battle, in the middle of hell, she stopped pretending and fought on behalf of her real self, family, and home, Winterfell. And what was the outcome? Suspicion and alienation. A worry that people might find out who you really are and you'll suffer for it. This is George doing his best kind of subtle deconstruction. The battle cry in fantasy is supposed to be the ultimate expression of self in the face of death. A thrilling moment for the audience. Gondor, our heroes cry as they charge into battle and we cry it out with them. But crying out Winterfell was a mistake for Arya. If it threatens her now, what if we should find out who she is? She'd never be able to escape then. So it's this beautiful contradiction wherein Arya must negate and suppress her Stark identity in order to preserve the hope of escaping Harrenhal to resume that Stark identity back on the outside. And so Arya begins to think about killing Whis, but specifically with the goal of escaping at first. That's not going to be her ultimate motivation for killing him, and George is very focused on that transition and how it plays out because it's thematically important. Arya also briefly considers killing Hot Pie to cover up his, you know, possible knowledge of who she is, which is hilarious that Arya's just thinking, hmm, maybe, maybe Hot Pie is the true danger here. But it's also representative of where Arya's head is. Threats are emerging from every corner. In Harrenhal, everything is zero-sum, and no relationships can be counted on for long. Far from empowering her, this ability to kill at will is making her more paranoid, more overwhelmed, feeling less in control. Yeah, I kind of find that the irony is a little gross and awful that Arya finds herself in this, like, you know, suspicion, dog-eat-dog mentality, you know, kind of less than when she's on the road. Um, You know, like, all, all of the, like, basically lambs for the slaughter um, with Gregor are, are basically treated the same in that they're not treated as human. Um, and then, you know, but, it, but here, you know, in, in hum, human society in, in Harrenhal, like we're all people, we're all, you know, we're all working for the Lord. We all have our position. That's when she becomes part of the hierarchy. And that's kind of when that, that darkness kind of creeps in, you know, to her life. Like she doesn't think about killing hot pie herself when he finds out she's a girl that's a, those those are great points and i think like too i mean what we're seeing is this this element in in heron hall which which transform you like on the road they were sheep to be shorn as she talks about in aria six she becomes a, a mouse in aria seven and has something of a wolfish identity at the end of the chapter when she's six checking a gar on, on chiswick but i think like what we're seeing also here too is this aspect that Hall is untrustworthy. It goes back to the stones betraying Heron the Black and historically, so to speak, where he thought that they would save him, but they didn't end up saving him. And that kind of filters all the way down from that huge top level layer on down to the, the lowest part of the castle. And that takes us to Whis and what he does with Arya and her second wish. Arya pays for this one moment when she allows herself to be Arya instead of Weasel. Because Hall is the domain of petty tyrants who bootstop that kind of individual humanity. Arya stops dead, stares into space. She imagines running off with a horse and a sword. She could use the power of text and literacy we were talking about earlier in her favor, knowing that the stable boys can't read the paper. She hears the soldiers talk about Rob, and she glories in imagining his victory. They are wolves, strong and fierce. If they run together, no one can hurt them. But then Whis shatters her daydream and drags her back to the harsh realities of Harrenhal, his voice described as cracking like a whip, which is a significant comparison. He takes the sword away and slaps her. The promise of extra food, so significant for Arya given how many calories she has been denied, falls away in an instant. This is life under occupation. You have no rights. 
no dignity, no security, no personhood. Your basic needs of survival, let alone anything else, depend on the whims of the cruel. The wolf is gone. The pack is gone. The connection provided to her old life by hearing about Rob's victory and fearsome reputation, the ability to cry out Winterfell in the midst of all this chaos, Whis took it all away. And it's it's so awful that, like, Whis can take it away from her. Like, she does feel that he has, he has done that. She imbues him with that power because she's been sublimated into his, you know, sad little kingdom where she is a creature who is satisfied or not or in pain or not at Whis's whim. And, you know, I just keep thinking, like, Tywin doesn't know who Weiss is. <laughs> like, the important people don't give a shit about this. It's just all taking place, you know. It's it's worse than, like, you know, upstairs, downstairs. It's just, like, important, non-existent. Exactly right. And structurally, this moment is the equivalent of Chiswick's story in Arya 7. I say structurally because it motivates the decision to kill, not because they're anything close to the same thing in terms of impact or sheer Baroque sadism. In isolation, a slap and a lost meal are not on the same order as rape or murder. But as I said in our Arya 7 episode, none of this is happening in isolation. Just as in Arya 7, George does such careful, effective work on a sentence-by-sentence basis to establish Arya's mindset and motives in this moment. First of all, this is happening to her, rather than a story being told around her. There are personal qualities at play, not only physical pain, but shock, embarrassment, self-loathing, powerlessness, everyone pain invites to the party. Secondly, Weiss was already a fearsome figure in her life, threatening her constantly, hemming in her escape. She was already considering killing him. But thirdly, Weiss just seemed to have softened a bit, giving her a reward, allowing her to think that maybe, maybe she has some control over her life. Maybe she isn't completely alienated from her labor. Maybe she's more than a mouse, a slave, a leaf caught up on the winds of winter. Maybe there's still a way for her to relate to her environment other than her kill list brought to life by Jockin. And then Weiss slams that door shut, unknowingly sealing his own doom, not only by being cruel, but by taking back his brief kindness, the exception to the cruelty. Arya cannot handle that. It hurts too much, inside as well as out, especially because Weiss made clear to her without even realizing it, that she might not ever get home to her family that she was daydreaming about. That's really well said. I completely agree. And you were, you were talking before about how the class structures work to violently oppress the peasants in Harrenhal with the nobility being that cudgel. And I emphatically agree with that point. To add something onto that, something that I was thinking about as I was thinking about this chapter, is that what I see with Weiss and the good wives in this chapter in the follow-on, Arya 9 and Arya 10, is how they attempt to replicate the class structure against their fellow small folk. Again, something you were alluding to, McCall. We're still, this is far from a benign class structure if such a thing can exist. Uh, I'm not a Marxist, so I can't actually say that <laughs> with certainty. <laughs> what, what Weiss does in his conduct with Arya in this chapter, and as well in the previous Arya chapter, is recreate the horrors of the march north to Harrenhal, just at a simpler level that's almost more insidious. We have all the same archetypes here. We have peasants brutalized for annoying the mountain's men. We have that boy who gets his leg bitten off or gets his calf chewed off by, by Weiss's dog for annoying Weiss. We have women who attempt to survive the horror by sleeping with their oppressors. We've got that one woman who is sleeping with one of Gregor's men on the on the march down on the march up, and we have the one woman who is sleeping with uh, with Weiss here in this chapter. 
And then there's Arya's fear that Whis can read her secret thoughts, which functions similarly to the Tickler's questions and his attempts to find out all of the secrets of the small folks. Where are your gems? Is there gold hidden in the village? Where is Beric Dondarrion? Where? 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 And then remember Gregor Clegane telling Arya and the small folk that they weren't allowed to even look at the highborn in the eye? Whis in this chapter grabs Arya's throat towards the end of this chapter. We'll talk about this in a little bit. And backhands her twice for daring to look him in the eye. And finally, and I think most significantly, is that we have this idea of Arya considering herself to be a sheep shorn, and that's what Gregor Clegane is doing with these small folk marching on up to Harrenhal. And here, Arya's identity, as we've been kind of covering over and over again, is being ripped violently from her. She thinks she's a wolf at one point, and then suddenly Weiss just takes her and just rips that identity back from her, takes her own autonomy and her ability to be someone to be some someone in this place that just swallows you up and forces her back down to being that mouse yeah i i think that's those are all really good points and comparisons that i didn't um think of um but again i just keep thinking it's this is so petty like this this whole <laughs> scene is mm-hmm. so so emotionally significant to aria but it's i guarantee you that Catelyn has put more meat than that on Arya's plate in Winterfell, and she has not eaten it. Um, <laughs> but, you know, Emma, like you were saying, this is all in context. It doesn't take place in a vacuum. Arya has been acculturated to this system, and she's retaining just enough unexpected agency and power to push back completely unexpectedly. Um, but in terms of the sheep thing also, like it just, it, I think the shift that she wears that Weiss makes her fix is described as undyed wool. And like, that's, you know, the the fact that he makes her like, make that worth wearing again is, yeah. Very well said, both of you. And yeah, it's not that Weiss is actually the source of Arya's woes. It's that all of this is compounding together to make Weiss the avatar of Arya's woes, as Renly became the stand-in for everything Robert did to Stannis. And like Stannis, Arya responds by whispering her target's name in a sorceress killer's ear. George emphasizes the weight of this decision by briefly reintroducing Rorge, who makes Weiss look positively humane by comparison. Unlike Jockin, Rorge does not believe he owes Arya anything for saving his life. Quite the opposite, Rorge intends to rape her now that he knows she's a girl. What an abyss of humanity that is, to look at your savior and decide to brutalize her. It does not get any worse than Rorge. And he is terrified of Jockin Hagar. What does that say about Jockin? Not that he's worse than Rorge, that's clearly not the case. It says that he belongs to a different category altogether. Jockin is frightening not because he's a uniquely monstrous person, but because he's barely a person at all. Will Arya, in her pursuit of vengeance, become like him? I do think that Jockin's separateness is really appealing to Arya. I don't think she she knows that yet, but I do think that, that there's something about that that attracts her. He exists completely outside the the words that I'm going to keep using the food chain of Harrenhal and Westeros in general. He's you know that that of itself makes him miraculous. Um, you know even if if he weren't promising and delivering literal bloody miracles to Arya, um, but you know of course her her refusal to like unhook her heart from her family to stay connected is such a huge point in her story. Even if she like literally disconnects from Westeros and goes to Bravos. Um, and adopt so many of the face, faceless man's way of life. You know, there's there's a lot to be speculated about Arya's future, but I think that this is definitely one of those, um, like some some of those battles, you know, that she'll be experiencing the the allure of being completely 
aloof and, and floating, you know, like Jacken is in the water here. Um, and the power that that gives you versus the, the, the joy and the worthwhileness, um, that your family does. Exactly right. Aloof and floating. And I think this, this state in the bathhouse is kind of the state Ari is trying to achieve with the faceless men in the house of black and white. This is how she kind of wants to feel. This is how, this is what they're offering her. Arya steps inside the bathhouse to find Jockin, a scene that stands out from the rest of the chapter, like Jockin visually stands out from his environment. Everyone else in Harrenhal is running around, getting all of their possessions together, covered in dust and sweat and scowls. Jockin soaks in water and steam, taking it easy. This bathhouse, of course, is where Jamie gets literally and metaphorically naked in a storm of swords, floating, quote, in heat and memory until he unburdens himself to Brienne. But when you peel back the layers of Jockin's onion, there's nothing there. He's no one. So this bathhouse scene feels like it hovers outside of time and space. Rather than bearing the burden of backstory, it's an abstract space to test Arya. At a literal level, it really makes no sense that a simple soldier is being allowed to take it easy while the rest of the castle prepares for the long march. It fits the aura of magic and mystery that surrounds Jockin. Like maybe he's hypnotized this poor woman. What does what does he even say? He's like, oh, you know, obviously when she doesn't give him orders, but she, he's she's he's like, tell my lord I will attend him at my leisure or something. And it's like right. a purposefully ambiguous, meaningless <laughs> yeah. statement. Exactly, <laughs> just just frustrating your your ability to solve him further. While the rest of the castle and the rest of the army is in service to the Game of Thrones, the political side of the series, Jockin and his little pocket universe here represent the magic, the age of wonder and terror. Arya has crossed the, th- the threshold, figuratively as well as literally. In all this smoke and water, in this kind of in-between state, Jockin could be anyone, she could be anyone, and anyone could die. But she picks Whis. The shadow on a wall takes shape, the bridge between the worlds is born and baptized in blood, and she flees back to the old world, changed. Mm, that's really well, well said. I mean, we, we've talked about how Whis is not nearly as bad as Chiswick, but he has that kind of ruder strain of evil as we talked about, a common evil and a willingness to inflict violence on defenseless innocence. It's fascinating that I think Arya's intersection with Jack and as a magical killer comes at the behest of this magical idea of, of vengeance, right? There's this famous quote from, from the Bible, from the author of Deuteronomy, which says, vengeance is mine and recompense, says the Lord. Their foot shall slip in due time for the day of their calamity is at hand. That idea of vengeance as something cosmic and tied up in the supernatural is something that we see in the very curse of a place called Harrenhal. This castle is full of the supernatural. And we did talk about this in a prior episode about Harren, the curse of Harrenhal itself. But Arya here, she's taking vengeance in her own hands, tapping into the supernatural element present in Harrenhal, namely Jack and Agar. It feels satisfying, right? You have to admit it. It does feel satisfying in the moment to strike back against another bad dude, another oppressor, another Chiswick. But again, Whis isn't Chiswick. And that initial satisfaction in getting vengeance and utilizing the supernatural will fade almost immediately in this chapter. Arya comes to regret her decision to order Whis killed. And this regret is the emotional and philosophical heart of the chapter. And this is key to the fairy tale three wish structure that George is employing in Harrenhal that McCall was talking about earlier. The first wish is morally uncomplicated, generally. It's a fireworks show used to legitimize the genie's power. Not only was Chiswick personally vile, he was raising other young men to behave like him. He had to go. George changes things up with a second wish in order to force both Arya and the audience to, to wonder how best to wield the power of violence in this unjust world. 
and I love how George paces Arya's change of mind. First, he dangles the possibility of Whis's better angels re-emerging. He calls Arya over at dinner, and she thinks he's remembered his promise of extra meat. She regrets her order to kill. But then Whis slaps her again, once more dangling the possibility of a better life before snatching it away. Yeah, and I'm, I'm just going to pull out my English writing major um, <laughs> <laughs> lens here and do a little close reading because um, I think it's worth um, focusing on the way George presents this. Um, Arya's eating, quote, a thin stew of barley, onion, and carrots with a wedge of stale brown bread, which, no offense, is a meal that you could maybe find in a lot of vegetarian restaurants, um, depending on <laughs> maybe v- even vegan, depending on what's in the bread. Um, but it's, you know, Weiss and the woman, the woman that he favors who get animal protein, who get the blue cheese and the capon. It's a literal gustatory hierarchy you are as important as what you are given to eat. Um, and then to, to compound this, um, after we, you know, slaps Arya, he threatens to spoon out one of her eyes and feed it to his dog. I don't know if we would ever do that really probably, but, um, he then like immediately after he does that, he shoves Arya and he tosses the chicken bone to that dog who is now officially higher up on the food chain than hmm. weasel because, not only, not only, like, does the dog get to eat what she was going to eat, but he's like, I would feed you to the dog. Like, you could literally be its food. Um, and that makes it so deeply personal. And I think that's what makes the, the regret that she feels when she has that horrific zoom out moment that we're going to talk about in a minute, um, stand out so strongly. It's that, that great dehumanization of you want more food? No, you are food. And that's what Arya feels in this moment. And this is the author making sure we understand that Arya's regret is not about Whis himself. It's not about the question of whether or not he deserves it, because he is not interested in his own redemption. Arya's regret is driven by a growth in political consciousness, a maturation in her understanding of who is responsible for the suffering she has seen and felt. She wants Weiss dead because he made her feel like an ant, not a person. And I get that. But Weiss is an ant next to Gregor, who was an ant next to Tywin. While Weiss's actions matter very much to Arya as an individual, Arya is not just an individual. She is a person who cares about what has happened and is still happening to other people. In that framework, Weiss matters far less than Gregor because Gregor inflicts himself on hundreds and thousands, not dozens. And even Gregor matters less than Tywin, as Bran and Big Walder know, because Tywin commands them all. And this, again, has real-world implications. Part of growing up is realizing the links between the suffering in your own life and the injustice of the world at large. This is not to say you should ever ignore your own suffering, but that it is impossible to even conceptualize justice without putting individual suffering in some kind of larger context. Arya clarifies this complex idea in direct, childish terms. Tywin and Gregor matter. They matter in a way that Weiss does not. They matter in context. They matter in the big picture. They matter in terms of why any of this is being allowed to happen. Arya doesn't just want the catharsis of a man who hurt her getting his. She wants things to get better. She wants a change in how power works in Westeros. Killing Weiss is not going to make that happen. And so she feels all at once that she has wasted a wish, her most sacred resource, her one power in a world at war. She runs off to stop Jockin, but it's too late. He's turned Weiss's dog against him. Eventually, someone goes ahead and kills the dog. It's wretched and awful. It's also terrifying, because before we know about the basilisk blood from A Dance with Dragons, it looks like Jockin has bewitched the dog into attacking its owner. 
magic has intervened in the political hierarchies of Harrenhal, reshaping the world just like it did at Storm's End. But it wasn't a king who died this time. It was someone on a far lower rung of the ladder, and Arya realizes too late she should have been aiming higher if she wanted to change the world. Personal fears and desires always animate political and magical power. So Tywin, unlike Renly, gets to ride away, golden lions shining, while Whis bleeds out in the dirt behind him. Nothing is quite as simple as it seemed in Arya 7, and that's the story in Microcosm. That which you think will fix everything, won't. And the stories failed to warn you. I tried to grasp a star, overreached, and fell. And I, I think in Arya's case here, you know, she hasn't just fallen, she's fallen back. You know, the, the language that George uses is distinctly trapped-like. Um, after, you know, all the knights and the lords and the golden lion and Gregor Clegane in his horned helm, because we're doing a lot of beast imagery, even though we would be anyway, because of heraldry and George being a nerd. Um, you know, Arya hears the rattle of chains as the portcullis was slowly lowered, its spikes sinking deep into the ground. And Arya's choice here means that exactly, almost to the exact moment that the jaws close around Whis, Arya is equally as trapped and almost basically devoured by Harrenhal. Well said, both of you guys. I think that's those are both really well thought out points and really, really well said. I, I think there's there's an aspect too where Arya's lost her chance to escape in this moment. She had all of the chaos of the camp that's kind of thrown itself around, but now we're getting almost this, weirdly we're getting an almost parallel to what happened in Bran's sixth chapter in the Game of Thrones, where Rob and his army march off, and you only have left with the silence of what's left behind in Harrenhal. Harrenhal, as after this chapter becomes kind of a quieter place for. The the space of about two-thirds of a chapter until Jack and Agar wrecks fucking shit in this castle. But it's it's weird to me that, like, not weird to me, it's interesting to me that Arya here is returning back to Harrenhal. She has had the, the jaws of the castle close against her as in kind of that auditory sense, as you were pointing out, so I'll McCall. And now she is left with this castle and left with a dead Whis. So what? whence goes Arya from this point? Well, we know because it's a reread podcast. But I think it does speak to this possibility that Arya could have been swallowed up here. She could have been captured up in all of the chaos that ensues the fall of Harrenhal twice, right? Because it falls first to first to, to Bruce Bolton and then it falls again back to um, back to Vargo Hote. And then it falls again after that back to the Mountains Men. And she could have been rolled up into all of that chaos there. Eventually she does get out of this castle itself, but you can almost be forgiven for thinking at the end of this chapter that she is just about to fall and just about to be caught up in all the chaos that is coming to this haunted castle of Harrenhal. Listen, having a third wish is handy. <laughs> True that, yeah. It's like wishing for more wishes yeah. as we're going to find out in Arya 9. <laughs> Speaking of which, moving on into foreshadowing and groundwork, uh, talking about Arya 9, Vargo Hote's hatred for Amory Lorch pays off big time in Arya's next chapter, when Vargo turns cloak to Roose Bolton and helps him take Harrenhal, leading to Amory's death by bear. So there's little mentions of how little these two like each other. That's going to pay off in the worst possible way for Amory Lorch. Oh, it's 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 really fun in, 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 a, in a certain sense, but it's also like kind of like disturbing that Tywin put, put almost all of his disavowable assets in one location. Like it took all the people who actually give a shit about and like rolled out of Harrenhal to go fight Rob Stark in the West. And we're going to leave Amory Lorch and Varko Hote at Harrenhal. Again, leaving the people in the Riverlands that uh, he could basically be like, these were the ones who were actually doing all the terrible things that was going on. So in the event that Tywin loses the war, which is a very real possibility at the end of this chapter, then he could say like, look, if I survive, it's not me who did all the bad stuff. It was Varko Hote. 
It was Amory Lorch. And again, that's something that we are going to see in A Storm of Swords as Tywin attempts to f- basically say that Amory Lorch is solely responsible for what happened to Elia and Rhaenys and young Aegon. Tywin is, is the master of the Shell Corporation, if you think about it. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Disavowable. Always keep your hands clean. He, that's, you know, that's how power functions and George, George manages to show us differently. And Lend a little bit of uh, groundwork here. Just as Weiss threatens his charges with mutilation by Varga if they disobey him, Arya will invent a threat from Varga to get Gendry on her side in her next chapter. So she's learning how to play with these shadows on a wall. The idea of fear is something that she can take part in as well as just being victimized by. And, you know, as much as she invents the, the threat of what Varga Hope will do, she's not totally wrong, right? The, it turns out she's, she's right without Hermos- knowing it fucking horrifying i mean you have women being raped repeatedly you've got the same usual executions and terrible things occurring to all of the small folk who again didn't do anything wrong they just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time and that's really just kind of terrifying again we're kind of getting to that kind of baser level of evil what happens when bruce bolton takes over and the new owners just about the same as the as the old owners of Heron hall itself uh to talk a little bit more about this cutting off the limbs. We have Vargo Hope being referenced as cutting the limbs off of people who run away. And that gets a plot repeat beat with the Tatter Prince and the wind blown in a dance with dragons. When Quentin Martell hears that deserves from the wind blown who are caught, get their feet cut off to prevent them from fleeing again. So something I, I was wondering about a little bit about, and I, I do think that maybe George went back to these Heron Hall chapters and kind of got a sense of what the sellsword companies were like that were coming from Essos. Is this something that sellsword companies are just known for doing at Essos of cutting off the feet of deserves that are fleeing from the company itself it seems like that's the case at least for some of the uh, less renowned ones we don't see hear that happening in the golden company but we do hear it happening for the windblown and for the bloody members it's all about the spectacle of fearsome acts and that's how these 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 brutal men stay in charge of equally brutal men and we see that also with uh, the likes of Rorge and biter and jock and hagar the fact that Rorge is afraid of jock and and you know that actually explains why he, he and biter go along with jock and plan on Arya nine because otherwise Rorge and biter just kind of pop up there and you wonder just what their agency is, but it does make sense if Forge is intimidated by Jock and he would probably come at his beck and call. Do you think there's like something that like Jack and said to these guys that was like, or just like threatened them in some way that just like kind of like broke through them? Because these, I mean, for all of their many, many faults, Roger and Biter don't seem like afraid of shit. The only thing they seem to be afraid of is Jack and Agar. So what is well, exactly he did? They were in the black cells with him. He could have done anything. I feel like he must have changed his face. And- oh, they probably so saw cool. that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What terrified them. Yeah. Ah, oh, so, so good. Um, so a fun one in this otherwise dark and miserable chapter. Three of the houses mentioned as marching out of Heron Hall are actually references to comic book characters. Yes, George, as we were saying before, was the original OG when it comes to comic books. And uh, this is a, a reference that Elio Garcia from Westeros.org compiled. Uh, the Citadel site, if you guys take take a chance or are interested in reading the site, it's a good site to take a look at. So Elio writes, Black Hood, Blue Beetle, and Green Arrow, a reference to comic books, specifically the Archie comic superhero, the Black Hood, and the DC comic super, superheroes, Blue Beetle, and Green Arrow. A variation of this appeared where the Black Hood was replaced by Thunderbolts, which has been speculated to be a reference to the DC characters, The Flash, who is with the Blue Beetle and the Green Arrow, a member of the Justice League of America, and or Johnny Thunderbolt of the Justice Society of America. Martin has been a comic book fan from early in life. No shit. (laughs) One of the more blatant of the many little bits of comic book references in the Song of Ice and Fire, but it's just a great contrast of you have these these emblems of heroes like, you know, Green Arrow and Blue Beetle, and then Gregor Clegane shows up. So you're like, oh God, what kind of superheroes would be in a, the company of a man like Gregor Clegane? Which gets back to the, you know, the question with which we started this episode. How is it that these men are, are coexisting in the same army? And I think George might be hinting at that with that superhero imagery. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I, I just kind of think it's worth just pointing out, you know, Arya's, Arya's 
kind of serious thought if she should use her kill on hot pie um for cottoning onto her identity and it's you know it's not serious as in like you know she she really considers it but it is something that occurs to her and i think that that idea you know this is a kid who's traveled with her her whole like he's been he's been along the whole journey um and you know is gonna be there with her going forward and i, I it's it's i think foreshadowing as to the um the coldness and the the lack of connection that Arya is going to eventually kind of thrive on, sadly. Well, you know, when you have a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. And when you have the ability mm-hmm. to kill at will, suddenly everyone starts looking like fresh corpses, don't they? And that's a question of how you handle that kind of power. And that takes us, I think, into our, our discussion portion of this, this episode. We want to talk about... You know, the, obviously we're set up very strongly this chapter. Oh, Arya could have, should have used her wish elsewhere. And it, it's it's worth discussing, well, how should she have? Who, who could she have killed? And how does the fandom kind of talk about this issue or not talk about this issue? It's, it's a fascinating question because it gets brought up again in the next Arya chapter where Jack and Agar is like, who's going to be your third wish? Is it going to be Tywin Lannister? Is it going to be Gregor Clegane? Is it going to be King Joffrey? Say a name, speak a name, girl, and a man will die. This is, um, it, it's an interesting question what Arya should have used her second wish for. Like, who is like the actual, and, and I think the question kind of comes down to who is the actual source of power that could, if Arya uses that wish against one person, what is it that disrupts like their war plans against the Starks? What is it that actually impacts the war in a positive way for Rob and Catelyn and her brothers up north? I think you, you can make a strong case for Tywin Lannister. I think you can make a less strong case for Joffrey, given that he is somewhat controlled by Cersei and Tyrion, somewhat you know, very loosely controlled by them at some points, as we're going to discover in the next Tyrion chapter. But I, I do think that there's uh, there's also the question of why Arya doesn't get blamed for misusing this wish. And I think it's a good point to kind of ask our guest McCall about this kind of dichotomy between a character like Sansa or Catelyn and their mistakes and why they kind of are repeatedly bashed, excuse me, why they're repeatedly analyzed by this, by this fandom and why this doesn't occur for Arya in this chapter. Yeah, um, I want to presage this by saying that it is completely understandable that a child makes a mistake like this. Like, I, I do not begrudge Arya for not, you know, thinking in the long run. Everybody kind of sh- shrugs this off, and the, f- the fandom is big. Not everybody shrugs it off. But, like, from what I've seen, it's sort of barely an issue. Like, people don't don't bring that up as a mark against Arya, whereas, like, the most minuscule <laughs> sins that Catelyn and Sansa you know, perform or, or, you know, Sansa telling a woman that she trusts deeply that she's been, you know, guided by her family and, and whatever to, to trust a basic timeline of her father's plans is like considered one of the, the primal sins in this series. Um, and Arya having the ability to stop the war, <laughs> um, is, is kind of never really raised as a, as a point against her. Um, although again, I don't, I don't emotionally blame her, but I think that it's worth, you know, if Arya is kind of a super child and it's worth thinking about where that is, um, you know, w- w- people kind of want, I think, to uh, enjoy that without necessarily thinking about all of the consequences and, and ways that the story has to change around that. I think a lot of people find it easier to empath- empathize with misapplied strength than with weakness which i think is unfortunate because you know weakness is universal so i think people look at a a mistake like sansa going to cersei and that's a mistake that feels to some people like something giving way and they look at Arya killing weiss as something good that was aimed wrong 
And I'm not trying to like, you know, obviously there's no perfect empathy machine and no one's going to apply empathy equally to each character. But I think there's there's something there's I think there's something easier to gravitate towards for some people, I think, about the, the dramatic possibilities of violence going astray versus uh, a person giving way to to inner demons in a way that doesn't isn't as actiony or isn't as as dramatic or climactic even though it's a similar decision and i think to you know give the benefit of doubt a lot of it is because aria like if you just paused aria and sansa and like it took still photographs and said which one of these people is suffering more you'd say aria because she's the one covered in dirt and running around and doing labor but you know sansa so much of what she goes through isn't apparent from the outsider is being shielded from the public and I think maybe part of the consequences of that is for the reader, who are, you know, we ourselves, an audience, a viewing public. I think for some people, Arya's pain is just more raw and immediate and bitter in a way that I think is part of the writing style. And I think that's it's unfortunate people shut themselves off to Sansa deliberately, but I think they are responding to a difference in style that is part of the text. Like, with Arya, you are shoved in the face of Arya's pain in a way you are not for a lot of, a lot of other POVs. Yeah, uh, I think that's it. Go, go ahead, McCall. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I think that's a really good point. Um, I, I'm, I'm always just a little bit wary around this because I think that the, that the sympathy toward Arya that is totally justified and, and, and worthwhile. And I agree is cultivated by George. Um, combined with the idea that she's some kind of like Wonderkin's badass, um, does blind a lot of people to the, the real darkness and dangerous elements of her story. And, you know, like, I think, I think her arc is one of like, oh, this is so badass. This is so bad. Oh, God. You know, like, like, at a certain point, it stops being badass and starts being horrific. And like, I and I think George is taking us down that road. But I think that, you know, people don't necessarily um, see that. I think people get stuck in their, you know, book one and book two perceptions of the characters a lot of the time. That includes Sansa, um, and that includes Catelyn. I, I'm convinced there are people who just have not read past Catelyn, whatever, whatever, whenever she says the mean thing to John, and it's just like, they just stop. Um, so I think it's basically continue to evaluate the characters that you are, um, you know, <laughs> reading and, and commenting on and connecting to. Yeah, I think there's like something to, be said too with this idea that with Sansa is interacting with her environment, she's acting, uh, interacting with it in, in, a, in a feminine way, which kind of Arya is not. Arya has his reputation for being a tomboy, but you know, as we talked about in this chapter, we see Arya as feminine in her own way, just different from the way that Sansa is feminine. There's something to be said for that distinction, which people tend to gravitate towards someone who can like just kind of strike out against like the the wrong people, the wrongdoers in a physical, violent type of way. I think Sansa does have this ability and she does. We start to see it develop in Clash and especially in Storm and A Feast for Crows of striking back against the against the people who are against her oppressors. I mean, we, we saw a very horrific way that Sansa was treated in the uh, in Sansa's third chapter where she's stripped naked and beaten by the Kingsguard members. But she's not the person that can that has Jack and Agar that can like bring justice to Boris Blunt and bring justice to Joffrey Baratheon. She has her charm and her, her ability to save her, her ability to try to save her own skin in the moment. But I think like what we're also seeing too, and which gets really expanded upon, thankfully, in A Storm of Swords, is this ability of kind of the woman's ability to, 
use power in, in a specific feminine way. The woman, the, what she witnesses with the Tyrells doing in in King's Landing in a Storm of Swords, and taking that mentality and utilizing it in a really strong way. Come the Winds of Winter, there's a sample chapter from Elaine One, where she's utilizing her feminine wiles and charms in order to not manipulate, to inspire people to want to come to her side. She's be, she's able to draw an army around herself in a way that's not her like killing someone and being like, look at me, the badass. I'm the person that you want to follow. It's her showing herself as Lady Sansa or Lady Elaine at that point, bastard daughter of Littlefinger, but eventually soon to be revealed as Sansa of House Winter of House Winterfell, of House Stark. And that I think that is that is a strong way that George does really good development for both these characters. So I, I do think that there is an aspect of of contrasting and comparing Arya and Sansa, but they are different. But they do are able to utilize power in their own specific special way and are able to utilize their ability to strike back against their oppressors in their own unique styles. And I think that's a really good way that George writes the Song of Ice and Fire and writes these characters of Sansa and Arya. Oh, they're they're both blades. They're definitely both blades and they're just sheathed <laughs> in different ways. And to get back to the question of the second wish, I mean, maybe Arya should have killed Edmure. What if Edmure's Whoa. not in command of the Battle of the Fords? Doesn't Tywin march into the West and every? But doesn't that, doesn't that produce the day is saved? I think that gets to the, the difficulty of these questions. Whereas if you kill Tywin, maybe Kevon just steps into his place and all the same things happen. You know, it's it's or you know, really, who she should name is Euron, but she doesn't know that Euron exists, and the reader barely does at this point either. Wait, guys, I think it's, she should kill George. <laughs> she should kill George. She should yeah, exactly kill God, kill the author, but. I think God. I think what we're being shown is like you know the ability to kill three individuals. Ugh, that's just nothing against like the the sheer weight of injustice she's running up against, and how all of it is being hidden away and washed away by the war. Like three people. What's three people? It's the inverse of what's saving Rorge and Butter and Jock, and she's come to feel kind of so bittersweet about that. It didn't mean that much to her in the end, and then the three deaths mean the same to her. It's like when she hears about Joffrey dying, but Rob died too. So what does it matter? And that, that changing relationship to death is, is so crucial to Arya's story. And it's something that's crucial to Sansa's story, too, just in a different way and from a different angle. And they'll have different angles to bring back to each other when they come back, different angles on the same ideas. And that's, you know, that's part of what any, any, any good relationship is, is bringing different angles to the same idea, like we do here on the podcast. <laughs> on the podcast? Podcast. I absolutely agree. I think it's a great way to kind of close out this episode. So thank you to everyone for listening. If you have the chance, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Podbean, Spotify, anywhere and everywhere where you find our podcasts. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacast A-S-O-I-A-F. You can follow us on Twitter at notacast A-S-O-I-A-F or shoot us an email at notacast A-S-O-I-A-F at gmail.com. You can find me at Quentin on Twitter or at poorquentin.com. And you can find me at Brendan Beefish on Twitter, Brendan Beefish on Reddit, and my website is Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire.wordpress.com. We want to shout out and thank our high lords and ladies on Patreon, Lord of the Squishers and Warden of the Deep, Lady of a Thousand Words, Septon Eastwood of Introvert Isle, Septon Maribald, the Shoeless Sage, Sister Winter, Lady of the Wolfswood, Nessie the Elusive, Warden of the Neck, Defender of the North and Keeper of Secrets, Sandy the Dragon, Blood of Queen Daenerys and Lady of Jameson, Lady Britt, Bastard Mistress of Harrenhal, Sir Thomas the Raven Knight, Lord of Blackwood, Sir Tim the Knight, who was guided by voices, Lady Dillsdale, the Star Spear of Crescent Hill, Sir Way of Course, Matt, Warden of the Sanguine Shore, Lord Mark Connington, Heir to Griffin's Roost, Lord Sam Kay, Sir Michael Mertens, who asked us our question this week, Wisdom Benjicott, Alchemist of Sets and Quanta, Mage of the Arts of Poole and De Morgan, Tibbs the Great of House Catnapping, 
Lord J. Manderley, Baker of the Fray Pies, Septon, Merrifull Head of Hair, Lady Silverwing, Joe Snow, King of the Metro North and Protector of the Tri-State, and Kaboth the Unfrozen, Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light. Thank you so much to all our High Lords and Ladies. Absolutely. Thank you all very much. And thank you also to McCall for joining us for this week's episode. And we didn't want, we wanted to give you the chance to talk about where we can find you on the online and all the different stuff that you are involved in. Ooh, okay. So, um, first of all, thank you so much for having me back. Um, this was awesome, as always. Um, you can find me on Twitter at InkAsRain. Uh, you can find a lot of my writing at Um And you can find my podcast at Nice Jewish Fangirls. Um, we are... Uh, continuing to plow on with the Vassals of Kingsgrave. We're doing a Harry Potter reread. We just finished our great linear reread of A Song of Ice and Fire. Um, I recently started doing the um, pod- Podcast of Surprise, which is a Witcher podcast with Aziz and Kyle. Wow. Yeah, Aziz from History of Westeros and Kyle uh, from Azora Height, um, which has been really fun. And we're going to be live this Friday with the third story in The Last Wish. We're doing that once a week. Um, and then I also have a little vanity project, which is called Gotta Believe which is imagining the uh, 2020 Mets baseball season as though it had really happened um, and was not cut off by coronavirus. So um, if you're a baseball fan, I would uh, please check it out. Nobody listens to it, and I write almost every day. So, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's kind of my uh, current rainbow of um, positions on the Internet place. Well, that's awesome. We, uh, I will have to check out the baseball podcast because I'm missing baseball right now. Though I'm a Baltimore Orioles fan, so I'll have to uh, Well, we haven't suffer. played the Orioles yet, so we haven't really said anything mean about them. The Yankees, we've <laughs> said plenty of mean things about them. Perfectly fine. Well, that's okay, easy. On, yeah, that's super easy. Yeah, we're on the same sheet of music there. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you so much for joining us, McCall. That's, that's awesome. We uh, had a lot of fun doing this podcast with you, and we will definitely have you back for future episodes. Awesome. Absolutely. Thank you. So, join us next week as we return to a run for Catelyn 5, in which Brienne swears herself to Catelyn's service. Edmure prepares for battle against Lord War Criminal Tywin Lannister, and Ned's bones pass through on their way home. And thankfully, they're going to make it there fine, right? Like next Catelyn chapter? Well, they'll just be right there very smoothly. Everything is going fine if it went to Phil. But yes, Catelyn 5, another beautiful Catelyn chapter. Another, another reason Catelyn is my favorite POV in A Clash of Kings. There's so much great stuff to talk about with that chapter. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you to Bacall again for joining us. Thank you to our patrons for supporting us. And we will see you guys next time.